Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. I wish it was Kelly who was here today, but he actually isn't. He's away on business. So I will be welcoming you to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. I'm Zev Nadler, best known as Kelly's sidekick on the show and power nostril cam user. Uh, But I also serve as his producer and engineer of the show, as well as being the manager of the ELRHQ.com site, your one-stop shop for champion vetted gear. Joining us is Cooper Balestrino, who is our social media guru. Uh, Say hello. Hi, guys. (laughs) Okay, so while Kelly is away, he did pre-record two amazing segments Uh, that we know you're going to enjoy. The first segment is with Rob Furlong. And in case you don't know who that is, he was responsible for the first ELR sniper shot that was heard around the world in 2002 when he established the record for the longest confirmed sniper kill in combat at 2,430 meters. You'll hear that story and more in just a few minutes. Uh, This segment will run about 40 minutes and then we'll take a short break and return with Bob Beck in a pre-record who joins Kelly in an informative and always fun discourse between those two. Uh, You'll enjoy it. They're going to talk about hunting, the industry in general, uh, and Kelly demos a few new stocks in front of the green screen. Uh, One other thing, today's show for our Voice America listeners is going to go over our one-hour slot. So if you wish to review the video component uh, afterwards, Uh, After listening on Voice America, you're welcome to come back to our Facebook Live that is happening as we speak anytime you'd like. And of course, that will be on our Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan Facebook page. It'll also be shared on Kelly's personal page and on the ELR HQ website. So at this time, uh, Cooper is going to spin up our first pre-record by sharing her screen, and we hope you enjoy it. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. I'm your host. And for the next hour, we're going to talk about anything related to firearms, long-range shooting, hunting. Um, I've got two really great guests on today, and I'm really excited to get to the first one. Rob Furlong, he's already on your screen. Uh, If you don't recognize that name, it might be because you've been in a cave somewhere for about the last uh, 18 years. But uh, just a little background, Uh, Rob was Canadian Special Forces, shot a 50 caliber rifle, uh, and was responsible for the longest confirmed kill in combat of 2,430 meters, uh, and that was in 2002. Is that right, Rob? Yeah, that's correct, yes. Okay, so uh, now I've introduced you. Why don't you give our listeners and our viewers a little bit more about who you are, how you got into the military, and how you got behind a 50 cal. Okay, so uh, right at the beginning in the introduction there, um, my unit is uh, three PPCLI. So uh, not so much a an SF unit at a, at a Canada, but a highly trained uh, light infantry unit. And uh, I was part of the reconnaissance there, so just want to clarify that. But okay. Uh, getting into the army, I mean, I started off at, you know, 21 years old, a young kid kind of, uh, interested in the outdoors, just like every other guy who probably joins the combat arms and infantry and kind of looking for a new life challenge and kind of walked into the office one day and said, Hey, you guys hiring, which they were, fill out some paperwork and, uh, you know, found myself months later, uh, in basic training, uh, 
And I wasn't your, your typical kid that was interested in military his whole entire life. It literally was, I just wanted to change. You know, I was living uh, on the East coast of Canada. Uh, the economy wasn't doing too well out there and, you know, just wanting a, a change. And uh, it, man, did I ever get it too. It was uh, it was a great experience. Almost immediately after joining, there was 9-11 and then the the whole thing in the Middle East. So you basically went to work right away. Yeah. Like I, said, I got in in 97. Uh, I did a tour in Bosnia in 99, uh, early 2000. Uh, I did a lot of competition shooting in between there as part of Canadian Armed Forces. And then you're right, 2002 or 2001 happened. Um, that changed everything. And I mean, it really did change our military here in Canada. I know as well as in the U S uh, we deployed February, 2002. And, uh, you know, we spent the next decade in Afghanistan uh, as a country fighting alongside the, the U S in, in Afghanistan. It kind of led into being deployed in the other conflict areas, such as Iraq now uh, against ISIS, where, yeah, that's slowing down a little bit. We still have our guys on the ground and stuff there. So it really propelled our military into the next fighting century, we'll say. Well, you know, you and I have spent some time together before. <clears throat> I met you not long after this happened. We talked a little bit. Uh, and then when you got out of the service, you actually uh, came to the SHOT Show and spent some time in our booth. And... Uh, we've really appreciated you being so open to us. I think my brother was running the company at the time that the Canadians reached out to him to provide the 50 cows that the Canadians use. Uh, still using them today, though they've been reworked, and uh, I don't think they're using the Macmillan fiberglass stock on them anymore. I think they've gone to a Kadex chassis, and they've rebarreled them. You know, the one thing that I know about the Canadians is that they are the best long-range snipers in the business, and I don't think anybody, even our guys, will argue that because your government is pretty smart in the way that they train. And you guys shoot more 50 cows than anybody does. I mean, you get more time behind the gun on a 50 cow. And your 50 cow shooters shoot nothing but 50 cows if, I'm, if I understand the, the system. Yeah, uh, a lot said there, Kelly. And, and there's a lot to be proud of on, on both sides of the border. I mean uh, – yourself, uh, your brother, uh, designing that weapon system, you know, at the time that was light years ahead of anything else that was on the market. And we took that system and implemented it into a training program that was at the tip of the spear, I'll say in, in sniper training around the world. And the success that we have with that uh, in Afghanistan really brought to the forefront the capabilities of Canadian snipers. And we've seen since the success in 2002, the Canadian sniper program explode with not only the numbers increasing, but um, the financial side from the government. The, the Canadian government, I think, has really seen um, our success as soldiers, um, you know, as a feather in their hat, we'll say. And have been willing, I think, to, to spend a little bit more money. And our leadership within the sniper cell in Canada um, ha have taken that and lessons learned, working with other countries, seeing what's wrong. And because we're such a small army in comparison to the United States, we can, we can turn real quick, we'll say. 
Um, and you know, we've seen how important to have a 50 caliber sniper rifle in our arsenal compared to some other countries who, you know, even start moving away from that. We've kind of really perfected that system. And it's been hard to really look at anything else because of the success we've had and the success that we continue to have. But just recently, as you know, I mean, um, yeah, you're, you're correct. The uh, McMillan was, was tweaked. Uh, they did take a McMillan action and put it into the Kdex chassis and uh, kind of just give it a new age uh, overhaul, we'll say. But it's it's still proving to be extremely accurate at extremely long ranges. And I think having a 50 cal in the arsenal is imperative. Uh, the anti-personnel success that we've had over the years is well known. But the anti-material role at a 50 is second to none. And we have used that for anti-material roles. And in my mind, there's nothing really else on the market that can give you that ability as a sniper. Uh, Before we go on about the 50 cal, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what you've been doing since you got out of the military, what your role is today, and, and how you've stayed kind of in touch for the last few years. So I got out of the military in 2004. I joined uh, Edmonton Police Service. Uh, enjoyed my time there. I was there till 2012. I started up uh, Rob Furlong's Marksmanship Academy. And uh, since then, it's, it's been an honest roller coaster for me. Uh, we were probably the, the first of our kind starting up in Canada, and it was really modeled after some of the successes of the schools in, I've seen in the U.S. A lot of the friendships that I made with other snipers who had you know, schools in the U.S., including the McMillan Sniper School, um, you know, in talking to those guys and seeing what worked and what didn't, kind of using those guys as, as business mentors um, really helped me kind of propel the school forward. And it's, it's exploded now. We've, uh, we're training law enforcement, uh, militaries. We've got a lot of foreign militaries visiting us. And now we're uh, doing a lot of traveling internationally. So we've, uh, we've been really able to capture the uh, interest of the sniper communities for what we're offering uh, in terms of, of sniping. And I think um, our success has been to keep up with technology and education that, you know, is really at the forefront of extreme long range shooting, but we've never ever eroded the fundamentals when it comes to sniper training, because you cannot have one without the other. You can be, a sniper with no technology, which means that you're short range engagements, or you can be an ELR shooter working on high end technology, but you're not a sniper. And I'm sure Kelly, you've been told this many times with the you know the communities in which you walk in. Um, there's a big difference between long range shooting and, and sniping. So sniping is, you know, in, it's a whole lot of different skill sets, including a field craft, a surveillance, and, and so forth. And the shooting is really a small percentage of what we do, but uh, it is a very, very important aspect because it's become a science rather than uh, a skill set, we'll say, and, and to which they kind of both intertwine anyway. But uh, to answer your question, what we've been doing is, is really just trying to stay on top with uh, how quickly this 
uh, trade is advancing right now in the world. Well, you know, to talk about that a little bit, um, one of the things that that ELR shooting in, in the organizations that I've been a part of, they want to believe that they can share information that'll be valuable to snipers around, you, you know, in our allies and, and around the world in being able to do what the Canadian sniper recently did by using the latest technology, the latest ballistics, and being able to accomplish something that before just recently would have been considered absolutely impossible. And that is, you know, hitting a target at 2.2 miles. And they did that by combining a bunch of different things that basically weren't even available until four or five years ago and, and started coming to the forefront. One of the things that that technology and the information does is allow you to get into positions where you can use that and eliminate having to use some of those other skills that you were talking about having, not saying that you don't need them, but in, in a situation where you're 2.2 miles away from a target, some of the things that make snipers really good at what they what they do is concealment and being able to stay on target for a long period of time and all this stuff. That's not always that necessary the farther away you get. So it kind of negates a, a part of it that becomes a critical part of it uh, in, in closer distances. So I think that's a good thing. Uh, it doesn't preclude the shooters from having to know that stuff and be good at it. But at 2.2 miles, being concealed amounts to something different than it does at, at 600 or 800 yards. 100%. And, you know, it's um, equivalent this to, you know, when you're starting off as a sniper, it's like guys who learn to race. You don't you don't really get into a Formula One car day one and just go around the racetrack. You start off in go-karts. And as a sniper, you have to learn the basic fundamentals. Same thing as when you're getting into go-kart, teaching you acceleration, turning, and braking. And as a sniper, if you don't have the basic fundamentals – uh, to be successful, extreme long ranges uh, is going to be very difficult. What you're um, insinuating about the skill sets not playing such a role, such as cam concealment, stalking, you're 100% right. Uh, when I was in Afghanistan with my team, uh, we didn't wear ghillies. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're over 2,000 meters away from our target, anywhere between 1,500 meters to over 2,000. Um, we can just use a lay to ground rather than having to use gillies to conceal ourselves. And uh, having that ability to do that because of the technology we're using made us deadly on the battlefield. And now you take with what's happening with the extreme long-range community now in the U.S. and, and other parts of the world, uh, it's it's – Snipers are absolutely terrifying on the on the battlefield, and those guys passing on that lessons learned, it's uh, it's making snipers invaluable. And without those guys doing that and sharing that technology and that information, we would still be doing the the basic stuff we were doing ten years ago. I mean, militaries are not known for developing new technology. I mean, they seek technology from the manufacturers, from um, 
entrepreneurs, people who are wanting to push the envelope. When you hear the word, that's impossible. Well, that's tantalizing to to most of us in this interest in, in this industry because we want to make the impossible possible. And when we first had our engagement in 2002, you know, there was a lot of naysayers to which there's always going to be those people. And uh, even recently with success of, of a unit here in Canada, there's a lot of naysayers. But we've seen this in person, and I, know, and I know you have too, that these engagements are possible using new technology, new equipment, uh, and having experienced shooters behind a gun. It, it is possible. You know, if you don't mind, I'd love to ask you to share that experience of that shot. Uh, I want my listeners to hear it from you so that they know the real story, how it played out. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, just take a few minutes and, and kind of relive that scenario for us so that everybody out there knows from Rob Furlong exactly, you know, how that shot went down. So when we got flown into the Shaikov Valley, our, our primary objective was, it was obviously Overwatch. We were the only 50 cal sniper teams in theater, uh, especially with the uh, Leica Vector 21s that we were using and, and so forth. Some of the specialized kit that we had um, made us far more effective than anything else that was available uh, to the commanders on the ground. Um, there were six of us that deployed, two 50 cal teams, two three-man teams. Uh, we were broken up into uh, different uh, locations to provide interlocking arcs for, for the overwatch positions to the guys on the ground. Um, we deployed with about 110 rounds of, of ammunition, which for us at the time, I've never gone into combat with a 50 cal system. I mean, thinking, okay, if, if I go through 110 rounds, it's been a, it's been a good deployment. Um, not knowing what laid ahead. Nobody knew what was going to lay ahead in Operation Anacom. Anything you read about it, it was very um, underestimated, we'll say. And not to do it in any fault in anybody on the ground or, or the uh, recon units that were out there. They just didn't see them. They were in, the, they were in that uh, cave complex, which was uh, labeled Ginger, Objective Ginger. And, uh, you know, we set up and we had... Um, Probably 70, 80 guys directly below us, uh, but a couple hundred more, a little further down the valley, were covering their movement. And the very first day that we moved in, um, we used the TAC-50 to uh, disable a Toyota pickup. That was our, our first engagement. That was at about 800 meters. Uh, when that happened, we later learned that over the radios of uh, the Al-Qaeda guys, they were, there was chatter. There was chatter about this gun that had taken out the, the pickup. Um, we had used a, a Rolfus round to do that. So, of course, you know what that does. It was very successful. Uh, it gives a little bit of a show with, with the impact. Uh, we became a target, unknown to us. Um, once we had moved in a location, took our overwatch position, uh, we were just going to wait till last light and uh, have like a, a last minute stand to and, and then everybody get into like a night routine. Well, just before last light, we started taking mortars and machine gun fire, dish gun fire. And our next engagement, uh, once we identified the uh, enemy machine gun position was 1,500 meters. And my, uh, my partner, Tim, took that shot. 
uh, with the TAC-15 was successful engage and eliminated that target at 1,500 meters. That was then from that point on, that was the closest target we'd engage for the rest of Operation Anaconda. Um, being, How many days was the operation? Uh, I think we were out there, and I can tell you right now because it's written on, we're out there for about eight days. Awesome. Of the actual true combat, because we went in a day before and had to turn back due to uh, heavy fire and, uh, um, and the Chinooks, but we actually spent eight ground, eight days on the ground in that in that position. For the for the shot that that we made, it was about three or four days into the actual combat that we we made that shot. And it wasn't a shot where, you know, we just wing some rounds out there hoping to hit something. When we started engaging targets after day one, they quickly learned that we had snipers with some extreme range capabilities and really put some fear into those guys to the point, Kelly, where they would be in the wadis and they'd be crawling on their hands and face, not knowing that we could still see them because of the altitude that we were at in our position. Uh, which made them just an easier target. Um, so it, it really shut down their supply lines that we were using. So the shot that we made at 2,540 and 30 meters, um, we had three shots at that target to be successful. But previous to that, and this is what led up to that shot, we had been trying to engage targets at those ranges for the last couple of days and had collected our, our elevation data. So we were really only having to deal with the, the winds and the mirage. Our hit ratio out there wasn't, wasn't high at all. I mean, everything that we were shooting at took three to four rounds um, if we were successful at it at all. Um, anything inside of that 2000 meter mark, the rifle was absolutely deadly. Uh, but when we started pushing out past 2,000 meters, uh, we were collecting data. Uh, at the same time, we were engaging targets. You know, we'd miss, and Tim was my spotter. He'd give me correction, and we basically walked on the targets. Um, kind of a little bit crude way of doing it compared to the technology we have now, but you got to look back. We had a, <clears throat> a 50 cal sniper rifle. We had a Leupold Mark IV fixed 16 power, but at the time, it had 120 MOA of adjustment which there really wasn't anything else out there with that much of an adjustment because due to being fixed power. Uh, we had the Leupold 12 to 40 spotters, and we had a 60 power spotter we brought with us too, and I can't remember the brand name that we had with us, but it was a 60 power. Uh, Tim, who was my, uh, my spotter, would identify the targets as we were glassing, I'd sometimes be behind a set of binos. When we'd identify targets, we get the vector, the laser range finder. We were able to get an actual range to those guys. Uh, most of the time, we would wait for those guys to stop because of those distance trying to hit a moving target was, was extremely difficult. If you shot at them, they would usually stop uh, or seek cover, uh, which made the, the engagement a much more uh, easy engagement as we were for the the long range shot that we made, but we were making those type of shots um, the days prior, just not at that, that distance. So it was all a collection of data as we were, we were going. 
One of the things that we've noticed in my experience twice at, at King of Two Mile is that that 2,000 yard, 2,000 meter distance is really where the line is drawn because you'll see guys at that 1,700 uh, and the 1,900 yard targets, uh, two out of three shots, not uncommon uh, during the competition. But man, once you go past that and you hit those 2,000 plus uh, targets, yeah, one shot on the target out of three was, and that's where everybody fell off. You know, a, a lot of guys, they'd, they'd get to that 1,900-yard target, make one hit, and never hit another target after that. So, yeah, that, that 2,000 meters, I think that we've come to the conclusion that that's really where stuff starts to, to change. Uh, so go ahead with your story. Yeah, no, so, and, you know, we, we actually had ran out of, out of ammunition um, because there's a, a belief that there was a Canadian and American ammo. Well, the ammunition we deployed with was issued by the Canadian government, but it was actually American ammo too. So nobody in Canada, other than uh, General Dynamics, who makes some ammunition for the uh, military, makes 50 cal ammo. We don't have bullet manufacturers here. So uh, everything we deployed with was American ammo uh, naturally. But what happened when we ran out of our 110 rounds, which happened fairly quickly because of, you know, we weren't successful having single round engagements, uh, we had requested uh, a resupply and we could not get a resupply from our, our home unit. Uh, a lot of the choppers and stuff that were being flown in were um, being either shot at. We'd already had two Chinook shot down. Uh, one of the ones was the, the Battle of uh, Roberts Ridge and, and the second one was a... Uh, uh, a QRF team that were coming in. So they didn't want to risk any more aircraft moving into those altitudes and, and getting shot down. So there was an airdrop done. And we were fortunate enough to get resupplied with some 50 cal ammunition. When we got the ammunition, they brought it to us. It wasn't the same stuff that we deployed with. So now here you are, you're at these type of ranges and uh, it, it, our dope was completely different. So what do we do? We just start shooting at it ranges and getting our dope. It, it was the most crude way of doing things. Uh, the rule about shooting no more than two shots from position went right out the window. Uh, we agreed that we had such cover and such distance between the targets that we would have been safe shooting multiple rounds. Um, at times we would get engaged. We moved around. We we were very successful in uh, tracking down mortar teams and machine gun nests that were set up on the mountains. Uh, one mortar position had Tenth Mountain pinned down pretty hard. They were taking some some uh, some casualties there, and um, we are very very successful in in uh, eliminating those guys. Uh, one of the other things that we were very successful doing there was using uh, fast air as an asset. Because of the equipment that we had, uh, our GPS system, which was uh, able to communicate with our um, laser rangefinder, the Vector 21, we were able to call in very, very precise uh, indirect fire and direct fire, uh, using everything from uh, the Apaches and Cobras to F-16s to B-52s, the Spectre. We, we called in a, a ton of uh, air support, which as you can imagine, was very successful in taking out mortar positions and so forth. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you did a whole lot more than you guys got credit for, and probably the least of which was 
you know, your shooting. Yeah, exactly. You know, the shooting, what we, the shooting, what we did there, I mean, Kelly, it, it grabbed the attention just because maybe it hadn't been recorded in history or something before. I mean, we really at the time didn't even know what we did ourselves, but there was a, we did a lot more other than shooting. Shooting, again, was a very small percentage of what we were doing in country there, but it was sure was a, uh, a life experience. I mean, uh, to have participated as a Canadian in a um, massive U.S. special operations uh, thing like, like Anaconda, I mean, it's once in a lifetime. Uh, not very many guys get to do that. So you, the shot... It, it was the third shot. Can you talk about the, the two leading up to that and, and finish this story? Yeah, you bet. So the first shot, just like every other engagement we're doing at those distance, was almost a sighting round. Uh, we would use that and try to get a correction on the target. We had our elevation pretty much figured out for those ranges, like I said, because we'd engaged so many targets and have shot so many rounds. We knew what our elevation corrections were. Um, it was the wind because the, we were really struggling with the wind. The second round on target, Tim looks at me and goes, I think he hit his bag because he had a big backpack on. And as soon as we took that second shot, I mean, it's really hard for me to see what's going on on the ground after taking a shot with a fixed 16 power. Uh, but they went for, for cover. But when they went for cover, they were facing away from us, so their backs are to us behind cover. But I have full exposure of the guys can take all my time and we sent another round down range and we we're successful in uh, eliminating that threat and uh, you know making notes in, in our book as we're going uh, we had no idea what we had just done no idea at all and I remember coming back and doing our debrief and then we have our our data book with all of our engagements and, and our notes and stuff as, as snipers do when you're uh, when you're operating somebody said like these are these are records, what you're doing here. And we're like, well, maybe, I mean, we don't know. And we didn't. Um, and then sure enough, you know, it, word started to get out. Um, some of the Americans had come up and asked us some questions. And next thing you know, we're um, given a, a full debrief to the command element and people are asking a few more questions and it just kind of went from there. And um, it was, it was surreal. But for us, that was early in the theater. That was, March, we were there till September. So we were just busy the whole time, really didn't have a whole lot to think about. Media were starting to come into country and uh, requesting interviews and wanting to talk to us. And of course, we really didn't want to talk to media at the time because, you know, you're operating in country. And uh, we actually at one point got ordered to talk to a reporter. Uh, and we were able to use uh, aliases and, and cover our faces and so forth. So to protect ourselves. Um, but there was a lot of interest created by that. And I feel that what we did in, in 2002 was kind of the, the ignition, we'll say, to what has happened over the last 15, 18 years when it comes to extreme long-range shooting, especially in the sniping community. I think people you know, see that this is possible and what a – what a tool that will be on the battlefield if we can have guys engage in targets up to 2,000 meters, to which now, I mean, we're way past that. But uh, I feel that, you know, our success there uh, really kind of propelled the, 
the sniping community into the to next century and, and made a lot of companies, you know, like yours, uh, companies like TACCOM, who, and, and I use those guys because uh, I think that piece of kit is, is, you know, something completely new. Yeah. Like a, every now and then, every, every five, 10 years is a piece of equipment that comes along, uh, you know, and that was, that was the 50, you know, back in 2002, that was a, a piece of equipment that nobody had. And it was a game changer. And you look at the TACCOM and the TACCOM Charlie and, and say, this is another piece of equipment that's come along and it's a game changer. It'll be forever remembered. It'll probably be replicated and, and uh, ripped off and, and how everything else is, but it will always be remembered as probably what propelled us into uh, the next level, we'll say. I agree with you 100%. I think that that shot and the notoriety that it got uh, was 100% responsible for the entire military mindset of saying, hey, there are things that we can do with this weapon that we never even dreamed of before. So we need to start exploring what our shooters are capable of and what the gun is capable of. Now... You know, we're getting a little short on time, and I want to talk to you about something else. And I'm glad that you're still in the business and training because you get to see and you get feedback from people, and so that you've got some some honest information for me. Uh, I know that you've seen our Hellraiser, our semi-automatic 50 cal that we've been working on, it seems like, forever. Yeah. Well, um, last year I decided I before I retire, I'm going to finish that project, and I found a firearms engineer, a design engineer, who would work with me. And so what he's doing right now is he's going through the drawings and trying to redesign the gun so that we can take as many pieces out of it, make it as uncomplicated as we can, and be able to manufacture it and for it to be as durable as possible. But we know because we've shot this gun and because of the way that it's built, with the barrel screwed directly into the breech, it's fixed, unlike a floating barrel gas gun as usual. Uh, the barrel's not moving. And we have a patented floating gas block that is not fixed to the barrel so that when the barrel heats up and things start to change, it doesn't affect the way the barrel, the gun shoots and it doesn't affect the, the bullet impact. So we're really confident that we can honestly claim sub-MOA accuracy out of a semi-automatic. Now, you talked about um, anti-material, and there's still a lot of that that needs to be done. No matter what kind of war you're fighting, a lot of it is getting the other guys to stop. And when you're talking about vehicles and, and uh, you know, a chain of, of trucks, to get that first one stopped so it blocks the traffic, and, and then you have a situation where you can control it, that's always going to be needed. So what we found is the semi-automatic 50 is an anti-material shooting, you know, rounds down range, and then a bolt gun as the anti-personnel rifle. But now you've got two 25-pound, 35-pound guns and twice as much ammo because you've got to have one. So we're thinking that as good as the 50 still is, if we can provide an anti-material and an anti personnel weapon in the same weapon. We think that we can scale this gun down to 
20 pounds without the optics, so 20, under 25 with the optics. Now, I wanted to ask you, I know that now every 50 cal that the Canadians use have a suppressor. What, were they suppressed when you had them? No. No. Okay, so that was a change that came about after the, the first couple of deployments, I know. When I was in Gagetown, you know, they told us they, they've got these big old suppressors that are about 18 inches long and, and almost six inches in diameter and uh, really makes a difference on, on how the gun performs, but concealment's part of the, the thing. Uh, a normal 50 cal bolt gun with just a muzzle brake puts a lot of dust and smoke and, and flash in the air. And with the suppressor, you can stay concealed a lot better. Yeah. I mean, I mean suppressor is just another tool in the bag. It, it really is. And me personally, I'd rather fire to 50 unsuppressed. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, better able to manage recoil that way. Um, it isn't as, uh, we'll say, brutal on the body. <laughs> Some people the think brake. that the suppressor is also a muzzle brake. And... It might be to a small degree better than shooting it with a 50 cal without a muzzle brake, but it is nowhere near as comfortable shooting it with a suppressor as it is with a muzzle brake. Now, my intention is to have the muzzle brake, the suppressor designed with an integral muzzle brake. So gas guns don't kick as hard as bolt guns do because of the, 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 the action, but we think that we can really get this gun into a manageable recoil situation um, and it be integrally suppressed so that it's got a suppressor on it all the time. There's no need to, to take it off or, or, or go without it. Um, and we think that this is going to be something that, you know, with the right ammo, sub-MOA, if they're shooting Rafa's or, or AP at cars or vehicles, it doesn't matter. So that's not the critical part of the accuracy. The critical part of the accuracy is, as you know, without the right ammo, those bolt guns that you were shooting wouldn't shoot MOA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's what, that's what our thinking is. But um, I'm, I'm glad that you agree with me that there's still uh, a place out there in the field for 50 cows because there's been a lot of talk about doing away with them and going to 338 Lapua, maybe developing a 375 shy tech. One thing that I do know is with the smaller bullets, there's just some things you can't do that they've already done with the 50 cal. So it's already available to them. No redesigning the projectiles and, and trying to put all this stuff in, in a bullet that's, you know, a 338 that's so small that it wouldn't be of much value to, to put any type of tungsten in it to be a penetrator. It just wouldn't be big enough to make it worthwhile. So I think I'm still on the right track. 100%. And, and Kelly, I hope you, you because, I mean, you guys kind of were, were at the forefront. Don't lose sight at a 50. This, this kind of goes hand in hand with what I was talking about. And I'm starting to see uh, erosion of fundamentals in, in the sniper community, you know, due to technology and stuff. And everybody right now is very focused on shooting at four kilometers, you know, 4,000 meters with uh, these, you know, unique exotic rounds, which are great. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, uh, you know, we, we've really pushed the limits of, of extreme long-range shooting. I look at that as a civilian, uh, a competition um, percentage of, of the population. We need to pull back as, as, uh, as a military and look at what do we want to do. Me as a sniper... 
I'm not going to take a shot at four kilometers on a guy because he's not a threat at four kilometers away, 4,000 meters. If it's a VIP and I need to take that guy out and I want to do that and guarantee a first round kill, I'm not going to take it at 4,000 meters either. I'm going to get a hell of a lot closer and guarantee that I put rounds on target. Is there a place for shooting 4,000 meters? Yeah, I guess. I mean, uh, it's, it's a nice asset to have. The 50 has a place in the military as what it was originally purchased and designed for. It was an anti-material. Until somebody has faced a threat of uh, an up-armored vehicle or a soft-skinned vehicle with a machine gun on it, they'll never understand the importance of having heavy capabilities on the ground in small teams. If you think that you're going to take down uh, a Toyota pickup with a dishka matched or mounted on it, and that thing is moving at 70, 80 kilometers an hour uh, across land, you know, 1,500 meters away, and all you're shooting at it is with a 338. Good for you. I mean, I would much rather have a, a 50 to, uh, to, to stop that thing because as a sniper, what we want to do is we want to demobilize the, the vehicle, get those guys who are now, it's, it's a death trap. They're stopped. We can take our time and engage the threat. 50 is, is the only thing that's in our um, <coughs> bag of tricks, we'll say, as snipers to give us that that capability. And I know guys are going to watch this and say, no, man, I've shot vehicles with 338 and stuff. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, how fast are we moving? What were the angles? What type of vehicle was it? What was the ammunition you were shooting? Um, your percentages of, of having a successful mobilization shot on a vehicle with a 50 is a hell of a lot higher than what it's going to be for 338. Well, Rob, I really appreciate you spending this time with me. It's been really great to catch up. Uh, glad uh, business is going well for you. Uh, maybe when I get a little bit closer on the 50 cal, uh, we can get together and I might let you uh, uh, do some evaluation for me, maybe some testing, uh, get some round sound range with it. That'd be awesome. Sounds good, Kelly. We take care and uh, keep fighting the fight down there. And we really appreciate all your work you're doing up here. Okay, and I'd like to ask everyone who's watching or listening to stick around for the next couple of minutes while we break, and we'll be back right after this. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. For over 40 years, Macmillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gunstock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, Macmillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Your internet flagship station for sports. Voice America Sports. You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. Welcome, everyone, to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Uh, I'm your host, and for the next hour, we've got a real treat. We're going to be uh, talking with Bob Beck and uh, Extreme Outer Limits. Uh, just a, a really great facility here to be able to do a lot of things that we couldn't do as a radio show. And this this kind of is going to be a uh, a simulcast as a radio show and uh, it's also going to go out on the extreme outer limits podcast network as uh, their podcast. And it's a way for us to kind of um, play with this new product zoom and show everybody what we can do. And I think it's going to make it much more exciting for the viewers to be able to see different things other than just our mugs while we're talking back and forth. So um, I've got, a, a, as you can see on the screen, I've got some stocks. We've, we're going to talk a little bit about that. That has to do with Extreme Outer Limits, and uh, uh, we're going to share that with him. Uh, I want to introduce Bob Beck. Those of you who have listened to our show know he's been on our show a couple of times, and uh, I'm part of the Extreme Outer Limits uh, podcast. So uh, the viewers of Extreme Outer Limit podcast know who I am. So, Bob, why don't you come on and say hi and uh, get us rolling for your side of it? Well, thanks for having me again. If I don't, if I'm not mistaken, I think, was I the first guest? Absolutely. The very first guest. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up, but I was like, oh, I don't know if that's for sure or not. But hey, real quick, I do want to apologize. I have a slight camera issue over here. But other than that, I mean, this is your show, your uh, program. And I got to say, I do like it. It's, um, you've evolved a lot with your taking stock show and the equipment that you have that you're putting me on from Arizona to Oregon looks really good. I like the definition. I could actually even tell from looking at the stocks on the table that the first two are some of ours. That's <laughs> before when we were doing these podcasts or radio show, everything was so blurred. I couldn't even hardly tell what it was. So that's some good equipment you guys got. 
Well, it's not the equipment as much as it is the Zoom product. It's it's like a go-to-meeting, uh, which gives us the ability to have as many guests on at the same time as we want. You see four windows here, but it could as, just as easily be six. Uh, but what it does is allow us to go back and forth with uh, other guests if we have, or a video camera, which we have set up in one window so that we can talk about these stocks. And it's one of the things that you and I are going to mm-hmm. get into in a little bit. Uh, but it just gives us an ability to be a better product for the people who want to watch our, our video podcast. I, I just never could understand why people would want to watch a, a podcast where a guy was just sitting talking to the screen or two people were talking you know, via Skype. This just gives us a, a much broader uh, ability to to do things that are going to be exciting for people to watch. I think more people will come in and watch. So. What I like about where we're going with these uh, podcasts and radio shows, especially the visual ones, is that we can really demonstrate the product or explain the product or even uh, showcase the product that you just don't necessarily have time for when you're running about 22, 22 and a half minutes of content in an episode. So this is really cool. Because we have the control of this and and we're just demonstrating it to you, we can do some things that you can't. But but once you set Zoom up on your at your facility, you could say, for instance, this window that has the stocks in it, you could run that same window and you could put clips of your TV show in there. Oh. If there was something that you wanted to talk about, you could take a video clip, put it on a, a thumb drive and set it up to view on that window. And uh, Zev can talk more about that. So basically, uh, in a few minutes, Kelly will get up and he'll talk about the stocks and we'll be able to use that green screen in the background to chroma key whatever we want in there. So I've got some great footage that Bob sent me of uh, Kelly going on a hunt with some elk with the famous uh, uh, branch bite on his eye. It was not a scope bite, it was a branch bite. And Kelly persevered and brought down a beautiful elk. Was that 780 yards or so? Yep. Yep. So yeah, we can superimpose anything and I'm really excited. So this is a new technology Kelly has uh, given me carte blanche to move ahead with and it's been working out well. One of the things that we did simply because we thought, well, you know, it'd be nice to have a green screen. I just went to the paint store, got the green screen color and painted the wall. So now that wall is a green screen. So anytime we do anything, it looks fine green. But if we want to put something on the background to do, we can. You know, I, I'm just, my brain never stops, right? I'm always trying to think forward. I'm listening to you and Zev. And what's going through my mind is a little, I don't know if it's an untold secret or not, but when I run, I guess we'll just let it out of the bag. When we run this as a podcast, you know, I think there's a vast amount of the world that doesn't know that television shows or outdoor television shows, I think they have the idea that we get paid to be on TV. And uh, that's completely false, right? Um, we get sponsors or partners, and and those sponsors and partners are the ones chipping in against the airtime bill and the hunt costs and tires and fuel and tags and all the stuff that it takes Uh, to make a TV show and it's so hard to communicate a message that is the, you know, beyond the scenes, so to speak of a TV show um, about how it actually works. This platform here, I think is going to help all of us um, because the reality is as much as it might sound awkward to say, 
the only way we can keep this big advertisement vehicle rolling down the road is by creating and selling good quality products. And when you're trying to keep a 22 minute uh, episode entertaining, you don't necessarily want to conk your viewer over the head with a bunch of information. By the way, buy this, by the way, buy that, or by the way, did you see this? You want to take them on the hunt and make them feel like uh, they're engaging into your show and into your program and not becoming a fan because I need my ego pumped for being a host. I, I could care less about that, but to try to become great clients in the long run. And that is so hard to describe or to say in a television program, but to be able to go to the podcast or go to your radio show with a format like this, where we can take and actually like you have, you have stocks on the table and say, Hey, this is what McMillan stocks is doing right now. Um, this is our new releases. This is, you know, all the technical specs of it. And then, you know, maybe lead into where we're going in the future. That is invaluable to be able to get that message out there because we're not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes or anything like that. We're just trying to communicate a message. And it's so easy, Bob, that we can actually send a webcam to a panelist we want to have on or to a factory we'd like to show or a venue we'd like to show. And it, within 10 minutes, you know, Joe was really quick on it and easy to set it up. We can get anybody to do it. And we've done that with a couple of folks. We didn't ship them a camera, but they had one and that's been working out. I was glad you brought that up because that's something I've never talked about. People think I'm getting paid to do this. Well, if I could get paid to do this, it'd be a lot more fun. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this yesterday when we were just on our cell phones, but um, what you're saying matches up. It kind of reinforces where I'm wanting to go. So I, I love these things because I get to let cats out of the bag all the time that I don't get to do on TV. But uh, we are doing a new site called Hunt Long Range. And, um, you know, there will always be naysayers in everything that you do because they always think that you're just out to make the buck. But the reality is we're just trying to run a good quality business and have good quality product. But what the purpose of this site's going to be is as Extreme Outer Limits is uh, building in its, in its premier hunts. That's kind of a division of our, of our company, whether it's the camps we own or what we're doing. Um, and we're getting clients involved in our hunts. What we're going to try to do uh, with Hunt Long Range is we're going to brand it as uh, a, a site that you come to, you know, whether it be premium mule deer, premium elk, uh, there'd be some bear, some moose, some other items on there to hunt. And then we'll be able to, for the guys looking for finer uh, products, we're going to actually create video content and maybe run live streams like this with whether it be you uh, when there's stock questions, or maybe it's, um, you know, benchmark if it's barrels or jewel of its triggers or whatever, right? But we can get that content in place. So when a guy is, uh, we're going to kind of run it from the hunt starting first, because that's, again, like I said, it's kind of a little saying, brings everybody to the party, right? Everybody wants to go hunting. Uh, what do you want to hunt? Okay, we want to hunt elk. You want to hunt mule deer? Okay, well, you're going to click on that species, and then we're going to have a recommended gear list. And it's not recommended just because we threw gum at the wall. It's recommended because I've had extremely good success over a lot of years of doing this at a high intensity level, right? We do so many hunts per year to film so many TV shows, which means we're harvesting uh, way more than average, you know, uh, quantity of animals for the guy that has, a, you know, a normal day-to-day -day job. So 
these are vetted, as you say. This is a vetted gear list. So maybe we could say mule deer equates to this rifle, equates to this optic, equates to this ammo with this bullet. Um, we could even get it down to pack choices, sport optics choices, boot options, all those things. And like you said, we're not trying to uh, you know kill it in the in the retail world. We're just trying to make a fair market, but a fair value to run a fair business and be able to provide a customer with exactly what they need on their hunt. Because after they book the hunt, you'd be surprised how many emails you get because everybody starts to either second guess what they do have, or maybe it's time to upgrade, or maybe their boots are wore out, whatever it is, they need to get some gear because they're preparing for that hunt and they've got all summer to do it. So uh, I'm totally on board. It sounds like we're coming at this from two directions, right? You're coming in on the extreme long range or you know, extreme long range shooting side, and I'm coming in on the hunting side, but I think we're trying to achieve the same goal. You know, the the really cool thing about you, Bob, and, and I noticed this right off when we first met, you you think about things very similarly to the way I think about them. Hi, Zev back here just for a minute to ask all of our viewers to stand by while Voice America signs off on the audio side. And we are going to go back to our video in just a few moments and bring the rest of the uh, Kelly and Bob show to you. Uh, Kelly's about to get up and show you those beautiful stocks on the table there right next to the green screen. So here we go. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.